you have persevered to the end, which that usually means a blessing, but instead you get me. So we're going to we'll go with it anyway. James chapter 1. So James chapter 1, we'll spend almost all of our time there. We're talking about contentment as a barometer for the condition of our heart. This is a brain, this is, I don't know, I was doing something someday and it came across my mind and and so Rob Green had asked me to speak at, in Lafayette and I said, oh, I've got something that's really been on my mind. He said, yes, so let's do it. And then Keith called and said, hey, what do you think? And I said, oh, this one's on, one I'm thinking about. And he says, oh, please do it. So this is fairly new. Uh, but I think it's I think it's worth our attention. I think we can learn from it. Uh, we'll just pray to get started. Lord, I pray that you'd grant us wisdom as we think about this text and and as we spend time with these dear people. It's the last hour. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a strength to endure, that we would persevere to the end, that we would be able to listen and it would produce uh, what you want it to produce in us. Um, and even as I teach, may it may it renew my own mind and heart in this particular truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Has been a long day. If you have to stand up, don't. You can. It won't bother me at all. You can do whatever you need to do. Uh, if you need to recharge your mind or heart or whatever. So, a couple of statements in relationship to introduction. Biblical counseling consists of public, private, and personal counsel. Now, what do those mean? Public counsel would be what what we do on Sunday morning, right? So when we take God's Word and we exposit it, right? We exegete it and we say this is what the text means. And then before we finish that sermon, we're going to spend maybe 30 or 40% or some percentage, everybody does it different, saying so this is how it applies, right? So we are corporately, publicly giving counsel I write a blog, so on many levels, that's a public council, right? So I write most days, and as I write those, I am often referring to the scriptures and saying, this is some stuff you need to think about for living. Uh, those are means of public council. Now, private council would be if you sit down and talk with someone, right? It's a, a conversation. Uh, so you're going to do that often as well. Now, in biblical counseling... Uh, you're learning, and, and I know you're not in track one or two, you're in track three, so you're experts. Um, and so, as biblical counselors, you know that you can counsel someone as easy in the foyer of a church as you can sitting behind a desk formally. Right? You don't need an appointment to do good counsel. In fact, everybody that knows me knows I only use these Pilot G2 pens. And I use, I love these especially. One, I love blue. There we go. We got some right. Yes. I love blue because I can see it on my paper. I know what I've actually written on. And that's so funny. Y'all have a bunch of them. And guess what? These are excellent for writing on napkins. Right? I can go to any coffee shop and counsel and I've got a pen that'll write right on the napkin. And I send probably half my counselees walk away with napkins. They don't walk away with paper because I'm just jotting as we go and helping them see something. And I'll think of a diagram. Well, why do I give more napkins than I do paper? Because I counsel a lot informally. Right now I do formal counseling for sure. I have to do that as well. But so when you think of private counsel, don't think of right. You're sitting in a at a desk and they filled out a PDI for the majority of us. Right. As believers in Christ, they're just gospel conversations. They're listening to someone in the nursery and they're bearing their heart or they're somewhere else. Right. So private and then personal counsel is what I call self counsel. Right. That's when you're taking God's word and you're applying it to your own heart. Right. We would say you're getting the logs out to help with other people's splinters and. And so biblical counseling consists of all of these. In each of these settings, the goal is to get to the heart of the counselee such that the counselee responds to pressures in life in a way that honors the Lord. Right? This is nothing new. It's just a broad sense of remembering our goals. So anytime someone says, 
there is one step or one key ingredient to sanctification. We want to be wise and a careful listener and think, uh, probably it's not that simple. David Pallison always used to say, anybody, anytime somebody says there's just one of something, that probably person's probably oversimplified. So now what have I done? I've said contentment is a barometer of, for the condition of the heart. I don't want you, though, to hear that as it's the only barometer. right? Because if I were saying it's the only barometer, then you would say, oh boy, I think he's oversimplified here. Instead, look at the next statement. We want to discuss contentment as a barometer for the condition of the heart. Clearly, it's not the only barometer. In fact, if you'll notice, just in the book of James alone, we have multiple barometers. Contentment is one. Uh, and there are others. What one says with the tongue, that's a good barometer of the heart. Right? Chapter 1 talks about that. At the last couple of verses, you get that, of course, in chapter 3, 12 verses there. Uh, what one does, I have James three thirteen to 18, but I think probably James 1... Uh, 21 to 27 would work as well for that for that particular item. But I think contentment is one of those key areas. We were talking about this in the while y'all were up here listening. We were downstairs, a couple of the speakers and I just having a good conversation. And this was one of the things we were talking about. Uh, it is one of those places. If you find someone who is content often you're going to find someone who's kind of flying level, right? They're walking in the spirit probably. Uh, things are going at least in the right direction. Again, uh, David Pallison's a dear friend. Uh, I miss David. And David always used to say, you don't always necessarily have to be making progress, but it's important to see which direction the feet are pointing. Right, and I think with, when someone is content, they may not be making great progress, but it is, I think you can kind of use that as, well, well, at least which direction are the feet pointing? Right, it's just, but when someone's not content, ah, then we know there's some work that we need to do somewhere. Right, so content, I, I think contentment's one of those places. So let's pick up the book of James. I told you earlier, we skipped James 1, 1 to 12, because I said we'll get to it. We'll get to it right here. So let's talk through James on our way. This is on our way to talking about contentment. All right, here we go. James writes the book of James to those first century Christians who faced pressure-filled circumstances. Specifically, life is not as they imagined or were planning. Let's go to verse 1. James, of course, who is that? That's Jesus' half-brother. He's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. So who are the 12 tribes? The 12 tribes are the children of Israel who initially were in at Pentecost, who received the gospel. They saw everything that took place there and they were part of the thousands who were saved. Now we know there were people not just in Jerusalem, but people all around the region who were there that also heard that same message. And it's those individuals that we are tracking through the first several chapters of the book of Acts. But what happens is that they begin to get persecution. Remember, Stephen is the first one that was faced the major persecution. And at that point, they began to scatter. Right. So when it says to the 12 tribes, which are scattered, the 12 tribes, they were referring to primarily those Jews who had just received Christ. In Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, those are the 12 tribes. They're scattered because they have gone and are beginning to go through some pretty intense persecution. So they're running for their lives. Now, let's pause a second and think, so what do we know about these people from Acts? Well, one thing we know about them is that they, many of them sold everything they had to share it, to serve everybody else that was there. Right? They had heard, and Acts, remember, records it. They had heard the great message 
of the angel, this same Jesus, which you see going into heaven, will come again. They anticipated him to not be gone so long. Now, he hadn't even been gone long yet by our timetable. But for them, he had been. Right? So they saw him disappear. Now they expect him to be back soon. But instead of him coming back, what? They've sold everything. They've shared everything. They have no really means to live. And now they're running all over Asia Minor for their lives. Many of them are going into slavery. Some of them are being sinned against by farmers and others, uh, landowners. They're being taken advantage of. So when he talks about the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he's writing to people who are going through some fairly significant suffering. Not on the level of health necessary, but certainly on the level of tough circumstances. So, notice the next bullet point then. It says, as a result, Pastor James seeks to provide them tools to manage their own hearts in relationship to their tough circumstances. Right? His goal is that they would mature in Christ. So Pastor James is getting these reports and as a good pastor, he's burdened. He wants to help his brothers and sisters grow. He doesn't want these tough circumstances. It's bad enough if you're running for your life. It's bad enough if you have no money. It's bad enough if people like Stephen have died. And so that's grief. We talked about yesterday. That's grief on top of everything else. It's bad enough if all of those things are taking place. But when you add personal struggle of handling those circumstances on top of the tough circumstances, of course, his heart's going to be even that much more burdened. So what does he say? Look at verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Right. So in your notes there, I have considerate joy. That's our word count. Right. I grew up in Kentucky and actually... That was a word we used all the time. If you went fishing or if you, even sometimes if you bought something, somebody would say, well, was it any count? Right? That meant, was it good or bad or what was it? Well, that's what he's saying here. Count it. It's an accounting term. It means that when you put it on the books, what's your final answer? Right? What do you, what do you conclude about it? He says, so count it. Consider it what? Pure or all joy. When you fall into these various circumstances, the word circumstances here is our word we talked about last hour, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's our word uh, for pressure-filled circumstances. The word various means all kinds of variations. That's why I said this is one of those texts that can be used with almost every counselee. Because our situations fall into various situations. Not, not necessarily positive or negative, the situation itself, but they're various kinds, but they are pressure-filled in their nature. So what does he say? Verses 3 and 4, he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produced patience. Well, let's connect it with two, then we'll go to four. So when he's saying, count it joy, when you're putting that on paper, the reason you can consider it joy is because that the testing of your faith is producing something. Right? The the trial you're in, the pressure you're under is producing this word patience or endurance and he says for that reason then you can consider that pressure joy it doesn't mean paste a smile on it doesn't mean fake joy right it's not the joy you find on the the tbn network right this is joy that is deep-seated having evaluated what God is doing with these tough circumstances, and we say, in these tough circumstances, God is doing something for my benefit, and for that reason, I can have joy. 
Right, so when our daughter died, when she was just, I mentioned it yesterday in the grief session, she was just a very little baby when she died. I will never look back on that moment and have smiles. Right, you wouldn't say, yeah, that was the most joy, the fun time of my life. Yet years later, I can say, I can consider that trial joy Because now, even better than then, I can see what God was doing in the midst of it. I could see what God and how God was working. Then notice how he goes into four. He says, but let endurance. So he says, trying the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. But let patience or or that endurance have its perfect work. Or let it... Finish, right? Let it get to its completed state. Perfect and complete. Pardon me, that you should be. I missed that line. That you should be. Here's our result. That you should be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In your notes, I have understand what God, that God is using trials, what he's using trials to do in you. That is to grow you into a mature, complete person. When I talk to counselees, there's a couple things I do here. Uh, one of the one of the illustrations I like to use is a cake, right? If you take cake batter, which I dearly love, right? It tastes wonderful. If you take cake batter and you put it all, you get it all whipped up and ready, and you pour that into your pan and you put your pan in the oven, and if it's supposed to be in the oven, what temperature? Three fifty. So if it's supposed to be in there for three fifty. For 30 minutes, and you pull it out, it's how many minutes? Am I wrong? About 35 minutes, if it's so, a layer pan. All right, 35, <laughs> see? I am deferring to the expert. So if you put it in, and it's supposed to be in there for 35 minutes, and you take it out at 25, you're going to have a problem. Why? Because the cake under the heat for the right amount of time, produces what it's supposed to produce. Let's go back to our text. It says, when you are going under, right? So it means you're under a particular trial. You're bearing up under it. When that endurance has its finished work, for illustration, that would be 35 minutes, then what? You'll be complete lacking nothing or having all your parts together, right? Having all your pieces. One of the worst things in the world is to go to Walmart and buy something and get it home and all the pieces aren't there. It's so frustrating. I remember buying a... I remember buying a uh, grill. It's the first time we'd ever owned a house. This was years ago. My son that's 21 now was one. He's getting ready to be 21. He He was about one year old, maybe just turned one when this happened. And so we drove into Walmart to to drop my wife off to get her whatever she needed for the for food. And as we drove in, it was this time of year, so it was already dark. It was in the evening, and I saw all of these grills lined up along the sidewalk, and they all had those little starburst thing on them. So I'm thinking, this is a sale. I'm a man. That's a sale. That's a grill. I have a new house, right? So you put all those things together, and you very quickly say. I didn't say anything to my wife. I knew but better. So I let her get out. And so my little guy and I drove all the way around the parking lot. We pulled right up on the sidewalk since he was under one and it was cold. So I just parked right beside him, stepped outside. And this whole line of grills, every one of them saved $50. Well, I'm a man and other men pay attention to men. And so as soon as they saw my car up on the sidewalk and I was looking at grills, men started coming from everywhere. So I didn't really look at all of them. I just went to the biggest and said to the man, this one, this one's mine. I can't buy it right now. My wife's inside. My son's in the car. I don't have a truck. Thankfully, we live in a town of about 20,000 or so. I knew the guy. His name was Charlie. I said, Charlie, this one's mine. He pulled it off. He said, all right, come back and get it later. $50. Brand, it's not a new house. It was new to us. First house. Had a beautiful deck. It... Now I had a great grill, beautiful, it looked great, to go on that deck. So first pretty day, 
as it was starting to get warmer, I say to Kelly, hey, get some, get some steaks. Why? I am a man. I've got a new house. I've got a grill on my deck. I'm going to go grill. And so, sure enough, she did. They're all prepared, ready to go. I go outside and click the button and nothing happens. And every, no matter what I did, I could not get it to fire up. I'm like, oh, heavens. Right, so we're talking 20 years ago. It, it clicked, it dawned on me, you know, I could look online, right? That was when online was fairly new. They did have a website that at least had their customer service number. I didn't have anything, right? I bought it as is. These were their display units for the whole year. And so I called these people, this dear sweet lady. She said, in fact, do you have a phone that can go outside, right? So that's how old it is, right? So yes, I do. I had a cordless phone. We were living high. And so... I went outside and we were able to, she said, just tell me everything you see. And so I started on the outside and told her everything I could see, opened it up and described everything I could see. She said, all right, I'll send you some, I'll send you what you need. About two days later, she sent it two day air. Two days later, UPS delivered two boxes. One of them was when I went to pick it up, I hardly, I wasn't ready and I could hardly lift it off the ground. It was missing all kinds of pieces. And I had no idea. I thought my $50 deal was excellent. But I didn't even know what was missing. Why? Because I didn't have an owner's manual and I certainly had not. I'd never owned one before. I didn't know what was supposed to be there. This sweet lady did. She sent it all. It was perfect. I'm still using it. Twenty. 20 years later, it's still on my deck at a different house. And I probably will use it till it falls apart because of this story. So let's go back to verse 4. God, who knows our character, He knows what we're missing. Even though we don't know what we're missing. And God graciously sends a... Pressured-filled circumstance. It's our word parosmos. And as you undergo or go through the heat of that process, what does it do? It builds in you or it gives you the pieces that you have missing. But in order to get those what? You have to let it have its perfect work. You can't pull it out at 25 minutes. It has to stay in for the full 35 Now, we don't know how long it has to stay in, but certainly it's saying it has to have its completed work so that you'll lack nothing. Now, notice then, verse 5, he says, And if you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what is he talking about? Well, we go to God then and we say, God, I need wisdom. Why? Because we're not sure how to respond to the pressure-filled circumstance. We don't want to respond in a way, and I'm going to borrow from last hour, two hours ago. We don't want to respond in such a way that we're clicking the button saying, beam me up, Scotty. Right? We're not wanting to get out of it prematurely because God has a purpose for it. So we're saying, God, I need wisdom. And what wisdom means here is the capacity to take the Bible and apply it to this circumstance. Right? So it's not, so go to Burger King and then when you're finished with Burger King, go ahead and drop off that card you meant to drop off earlier. It's not that level of wisdom that he's given you, not step by step. It's the capacity to take the Bible and apply it in a circumstance. And so he says, now go... Pray for wisdom because you'll need wisdom, what? And as you go through this particular pressure. You get that in verses 5 through 8. Fascinating, in verse 8, he says, he is a double, it says, verse 7, for let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, talking about asking with wavering faith, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. What's he referring to? He's referring to the person That as you go through the circumstances, a double-minded man is somebody who says, I'm going to trust the Lord. But while they say they're going to trust the Lord, they're running their own scheme. Right? They're making sure that they manipulate or whatever they need to do to try to make this turn out the way they want it to turn out. 
the double-minded man in chapter 1 is the same double-minded man that's called the man that's full of pride in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Right, so that double-minded man, he's got two different things going here. Now look in verses 9 through 11. It says, James seeks to encourage them in their plight. As poor people on the run, he encourages them to accept this as God's best. He says, now let the lower, lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Now what's he talking about? These are poor people. And he is saying to them, listen, you can be content. You can be encouraged in this circumstance. Even the rich person. He says in his humiliation, he's because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Even the rich person, he's saying, be understanding that riches will only take you so far. In both, he's encouraging humility to respond to pressure filled circumstances. And then we get to verse 12. And he says, and blessed is the man who endures temptation. What does that endurance look like? It's perseveres under right you the again the endurance here is you're building your spiritual muscles as the pressures bear down on you through them it says for when he's been approved you'll receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him ultimately there will be eternal rewards but between here and eternity i would suggest to you friends as you get the pieces that god intends for you to get as you go through these pressure filled circumstances you'll receive many blessings It's not one blessing, but it would be many. So blessed is the person who endures what? That's our word temptation again. And it's our same word in verse 2, various trials. That's the pressure-filled circumstances. It's the same word we had in 1 Corinthians 10.13. So James is trying to help them. In the circumstance. Now notice what happens when you fail to understand your pressure filled circumstances. Well, there's, I'm going to suggest there's two things, three things that happen. Here's the first one. You'll dishonor God. Right? If you don't respond in the right way, you're not going to honor God in the midst of this trial. Not only will you not honor God, but you're going to sin in the midst of the pressure. So God won't be honored and now you're going to complicate your pressure with sin. So that's not helpful. And the third thing, the problem is the heart. And now he's going to help us understand sin, which is where contentment becomes a major barometer for the condition of the heart. So this is very helpful to us. In verses 1 through 12, he set the stage that you have various pressures. And if you will respond godly in those pressures, you will receive blessings both eternally and the temporal blessing is going to be God will grow in your heart, give you the pieces that you're missing at the characterological level. So we go to verse 13, and it looks like not everybody's doing quite what they're supposed to do. He says, well, let no one say when he is tempted. Now, it's a different kind of the same word. Here he's using it. It's, 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 still, it's still, in essence, a neutral word. But the way, in the context, we can understand he's saying that you're, it actually is about sin. He says, no, let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Notice then in your notes, let's talk about sin in the heart. Here's the first point. You should not blame God for a temptation to sin. Why? Because temptation always originates in your own heart. So what does he say? Do not say I'm being tempted to sin from God. Well, when... Whenever you're being tempted. Right? Whenever you have a solicitation to sin, he's saying don't say that that solicitation comes from God. Why does he say don't say that? He says two reasons why. First, because God can't be tempted to do evil. 
There is never a circumstance where in God's heart, in a pressured circumstance, he has a solicitation toward evil. He says, that's impossible. It can't happen. Why? Because God is holy. Right? He's light and in him is no darkness at all. He gives us a second reason. Because God does not tempt any man. So you can't say that your sin is caused by God because God is the one who's tempting you. Now what does it mean God doesn't tempt you? It means that when God provides you a pressure-filled circumstance which you are undergoing, and in that pressure-filled circumstance, God's goal is to grow you to become like Jesus, not to have you sin under it. Right? So God is not bringing pressures to force you to sin. That's what James 1.13 is saying. Doesn't mean you won't sin, but James is saying if you are sinning, brothers and sisters who are running all over Asia Minor, if you are sinning under this pressure, as your pastor, I hear you, some of you are blaming God for your sin. No, sir, you will not do that. Why? Because God can't be tempted, neither does he tempt any person. So that's out of bounds. This is just a quick side issue. Just jot yourself a note. In Hebrews 2... And Hebrews 4, you see the same. Remember, it says Jesus went through every temptation like we do. That's parosmosis. It's the same kind of temptation. What does it mean? It just simply means Jesus went through every pressure-filled circumstance just like we do. He knows what it's like to go under circumstance. And he was what? Hebrew says he demonstrated righteousness in the midst of all of that. But in the midst of going under those circumstances, he now understands us. So when we pray to him, he gives great mercy. Right? So that's just a side issue related to this and verse 13. So then what happens? Look at verse 14. Recognize that temptation to sin comes from your own desires. Verse 14 says, but, so don't blame it on God, but each one, it's talking about every believers, believer, each one, and it would be non-believers as well, but the context is believers, each one is tempted, that is drawn away towards sin, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the question is, what tempts you? It's not God and what? It's not your circumstance. You can't blame your circumstance either. Because when you are drawn away towards sin, what tempts you is the desire that's in your heart. It's whatever it is you want out of that circumstance in this moment. That is what... uh, That is what uh, draws you away. That's what tempts you here to sin. How does it tempt you? I love this because, again, I'm from the country. I grew up hunting and fishing and lo and behold, James is speaking my language. Look at this. It says, when he is drawn away, the first word is actually a word for lure. Right? So the word drawn away is like a lure that drags you away. Right, I grew up fishing and, and have spent hours and hours out on lakes, taught my own children how to fish. And when you, so let's say that you have a fish that you've spotted and you drop a worm right in there on his nest. Let's say it's the springtime. What are you doing? You're going to bring that worm, you're going to pull it right across that nest and the goal is what? To get that, I'm thinking about a bass, to get that bass to take the lure. Right, And at the point of when he picks that lure up, you're going to set the hook so that you can catch the fish. Right, So this lure drags across the path of this particular fish. The goal is to get it. Right, The goal is to catch it. My youngest guy, youngest boy, when we first started fishing, he would call his fishing rod, he called it a catching rod. Right, I love that faith. Right, That's good faith. <laughs> 
So he had a catching rod and his rod, when you would pull it across in front of that fish, you want the fish to grab it. Right? So what's James saying? Your desire, whatever it is that you want, in the midst of this circumstance, when it drags across your heart, you are moving towards sin when your heart takes it. Right? When you take that thing and it becomes your controlling desire. That's the first word, is allure. Second word, and I'm using New King James, here it's translated and enticed. The word enticed is actually a hunting term. It's a term for a trap. You've been trapped. Right? We Again, we live out in the country now. My brother and I, we have about 30 acres between the two of us. We have a fence line that separates our properties. He's one of, he's my twin brother and he's one of the elders in our church. And so I had this beautiful cherry tree that we had all kinds of uh, bird feeders hanging in. But coons, raccoons love cherries. And so I could look out at my, I could go outside my house at nighttime and if I turned on the right lights, I could have a tree full of coons. And they would tear my bird feeders all to pieces. And so what I do, I set traps. So, of course, I could transport them somewhere else because uh, that's what you do when you trap something. So, so I set these traps, and when you set the trap, right, the goal is that you put, and we used, I think for these coons we were using marshmallows, but you put something in that might, that they might enjoy, that they might want, And the goal is, we put leaves and some sticks and stuff at the front end of the trap, but the goal is that they get on in that trap, and as they move toward what they want, it's going to flip that, right, the the cage, uh, the balance flips, it lets the door fall down, and now they're caught. Right, so what he's saying is that the desire, what you want in your heart, in the midst of this pressure-filled circumstance is what either you take as a lure or what traps you as a trap. It's very great illustrations that he's using for us. Well, then what happens when that takes place? Look at verse 15. Then when lust, when desire, I should say, has conceived, we just switch word pictures. We just went from hunting and fishing to birth. Right now, we've had five children. Number five was different than one through four. Why? Because by the time we had number five, they had these cool apps. That once we knew the day that Kelly conceived, and we did know that day, once we knew that day, you stick that in the app and it tells you everything. Today, your child is hiccuping, and today your child can hear, and today you're, and it's amazing. And you can track every day, within reason, of this child's size and everything, all the way up to 40 weeks. Why can they do that? Because it's clockwork. It's the way God made us. Within variations, it's pretty much guaranteed, from conception all the way to the birth you know what's going to happen. Now look what James has done. He says, when desire conceives, what can you expect? Sin. That's where you're headed. So that's the first stop. And sin, when it's finished, it has all kinds of consequences. The hardest, of course, is death, but we know there's Maybe a thousand deaths. There's all kinds of consequences of sin. So, look at our chart we have down at the bottom of your page. So you have pressure. And what does that pressure do? That pressure influences your heart. Now, inside your heart, you have a desire of some kind. And when you have that desire, one of three things are going to be the result. The first result will be you consider that a trial. What is a trial? That means that when you were pressured, 
you have pressures that influence your heart and your desire is such that through that desire you persevere and you grow in Christ likeness. We call that a trial. Or your heart can respond with what we'll call a temptation turn trial. What that means is that under the pressure, your heart wants something and you begin down this trail towards sin, but you recognize, wait a minute, this is the trail towards sin. You stop it and you say, I know I'm going to seek to be faithful in this trial. And so even though you may have initially been drawn towards sin, you repent quickly and you move what toward righteousness. It's you're going to grow. Or the third option is a temptation. When it's unchecked, it's going to lead to sin and all of those consequences. But notice the pressure's neutral. The pressure never changed. What changed? What changed was how your heart responded to it. That's what determines what goes on in terms of whether you grow or whether you're tempted to sin. Now, let's look at verses 16 to 18. God only provides good gifts to mankind. Verse 16, he says, hey, don't err. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Oh, he's helping us. He's given us a warning. The warning emphasizes the possibility of deception. And again, here he's talking to believers in Christ. He says, hey, don't get this wrong. It's important for you to understand it. What are we supposed to understand? Verse 17. That every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift. Now, what is he talking about? Friends, I'm going to suggest he goes all the way back to verse 2. And the pressure that God has given... That pressure is a good and perfect gift. Right? So what he's trying to do here, this gift of pressure is from God. Right? It says, where does it come from? It says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. So that's from God. It comes down from the Father of lights. Who is the father of lights? Well, I've already mentioned in God, he is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And it describes that. He says the kind of light God is, there's no variation, meaning, right? All of these lights have a frequency in God. There's no frequency change. He's always pure. He's always 100 percent light. And then it says, and in him is no shadow of turning. Right. So if you use my the white off my Bible here. Right, So what he's referring to, a shadow that shifts, that's the way a sundial works. As the sun and the earth engage each other, the shadow shifts, and then you can know what time it is. What he's saying about God is that God's light is always perfect. It's always perfectly given such that you don't have shifting shadows. What he's emphasizing in this verse is that God is always faithful. Which sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 10.13 again. And in God's faithfulness, He only gives good and perfect gifts. He's What you get is what you always get. There's no variation or shadow of turning. Now verse 18. So what is God doing? Well, of His own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, we know that Paul says a similar thing, doesn't he, in Romans, when he says, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So everybody's faith journey starts with truth. So God brings us forth. We are begotten by God through the word. Now, here's his purpose, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he has a sanctification purpose. What did he do? He gave birth to us. Why? Because he was willing. How? By the word of truth. And for what purpose? So that we would be kind of a first fruit. We would be a demonstration of ultimately what redemption is going to look like in this future day. 
So then why is he bringing the good and perfect gifts of trials? Because it's going through those trials where we're becoming what? Better first fruits. We're getting the pieces that are missing. All right, now let's try to, you say, I thought this was about contentment. Well, let's go there then. And these are just a bunch of observations without a bunch of time. So we'll work through them as quickly as we can. God only provides good and perfect gifts. That's the first thing. This includes the entire process of receiving the gift and would have to include our circumstances. So whatever circumstance you find yourself in, even if someone sinned to put you in it, you have to understand when you put that on God's mathematical book, when you do the accounting, God has only good purposes in mind. That is that we become more like Jesus Christ. God never changes, nor is changed. So that even like with these people, they are running for their lives. They are poor. They're being treated, maltreated. We see that later in James. He says, come now, you rich and weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. James is frustrated with these rich people and the way these believers are being treated. But what he's saying is God doesn't change. He is always faithful. He is always steady. He is always trustworthy. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones he's writing to, you can trust him in the midst of these trials. God has provided your redemption as part of his gracious love and his gracious plan. Right? He demonstrates his love for you in redemption and he demonstrates his plan of redemption through you. Why? Because you're becoming one of these first fruits. You are proof positive that redemption will take place not only in people but in the whole cosmos in the future. Like Romans talks about. So what do we learn about people? Well, it's easy to be deceived by our own sin and misunderstanding. It's very easy to be deceived by sin. It's important to understand the big picture. The big picture is God is using pressure-filled circumstances that we're under, right? Because the word endurance means to bear up under. I don't know if I ever said that. But we are under these circumstances and God is using that to help us grow to become the people he wants us to be. It says here we should never evaluate life around us without God's perspective. But the reality is we can't evaluate life around us without God's perspective and not get it right. So how are you so easily deceived? I give you three reasons right here. Well, you're easily deceived because you misunderstand God. Just like these first century Christians, they were frustrated. They were discon- They were not content because they had one set of expectations and God's plan was something different. And with it not going the way they expected it to go, they said, well, why has God done this? They sound like the children of Israel, don't they? You misunderstand your own heart. You say, I'm just fine. No. Right? Not if there's sin. We know we're not fine. There's more work we need to do. You misunderstand your circumstance. You don't see it as a good and perfect circumstance. And again, the good and perfect is from God's perspective. Let's go back to my daughter's death. My daughter's death is never something I'll rejoice in. That was deep suffering and hard And it's changed, my marriage has changed everything about us. But part of the change everything about us is what? Part of God's good plan as we've endured it to actually develop into the people God wanted us to develop into. Doesn't make that death fun, easy, or something I ever want to do again. But it also doesn't make it wrong. It's part of God's good and perfect gifts to us. Why? Because God desires for us to be proof positive of redemption to come. Now contentment. 
what was missing in the lives of those Christ followers that Pastor James is trying to help them understand. And what was missing was contentment. Let's get a definition. Contentment is a settled disposition of your heart. That your inner man in every situation. Right? It's a settled disposition. Now, we nuance that four ways. Which does not demand changes, pardon me, in external circumstances. I don't have to have my external circumstances to change in order to be settled in God's plan in this circumstance. Doesn't, right? Settled is different than liking it. So I can be settled. It's satisfied with what God has given as best. Again, doesn't mean I like it. But I can be satisfied that God has given me what is best according to His purposes. It's not passive acceptance of the status quo, but it's the positive assurance that God has supplied my needs and the consequent release from unnecessary desire. I don't have to cling on to that desire. I call it the white-knuckled response of the heart. Right? The more my heart grips a desire, rather than saying, not my will, but your will be done, it says, I want this. What? It's gonna, the longer I hold it, the more white my knuckles will become. It's that white-knuckled response of the heart that we don't have to have. It's satisfied with your lot, whatever that is, since God only does what's good for me and what is for His glory. So number seven, your level of contentment then is one of the best ways to evaluate the quality of your relationship with Christ. You're not right with God when you're discontent. If there's discontentment, you can't say everything's good. You pass the looks of righteousness and what? You get to the heart. Because you may say, oh, I'm just fine with God. Look, I still go to church. I still give offering. I still do this. I still do that. No, 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 no. We're past all that. We're saying, well, tell me, are you content? Because you can be doing all those things, but if you're discontent, it's still, that's a good thermometer's thermometer. That still tells me something's not right. So how do you evaluate your contentment level? Let me give you a couple ways. First, you can complete this statement. My life would be perfect if only, what? If there's an if only in there other than if only I were faithful to Jesus, then probably I'm not content. Consider the following I desire. This, consider the following idea. If I desire something, how much do I desire it? This is, Brad Bigney is the one who put this in a book, but it's been around counseling for a long time. But these are four great good questions. Do I desire this so much that I'm willing to sin to get it? If I do, that means I'm discontent and I desire it too much. Do I desire this so much that I'm willing to sin if I do not get it? Do I desire this so much that I'm willing to sin if I'm afraid I'm going to lose it? And do I desire this so much that I turn to it as a refuge? One more question you could ask is would I be happier or more satisfied if my situation, and that should say were, but it says was, ask your, would I be happier or more satisfied if my situation were different? One note. Desiring is not wrong. It's how much you desire and what you desire that must be considered. A desire itself is neutral. It's to the extent that I desire it where I run into problems. Okay, let's work through these. Again, we're going to have to do this fairly quickly. looks like we're out of time. What do I do then if I'm struggling with contentment? Immediately, I can do these things. I need to determine what the look of discontentment is. What am I doing that demonstrates I'm discontented? What accountability do I have? I need to bring somebody into the conversation. 
What relationships are affected and how? I need to start doing something with those relationships. What deceptions am I practicing? Verse 16 suggests we're deceived. So what does that look like? Where have I been losing the battle to do what is right? Is it at the temptation stage or is it at the outer behavior stage? Is it the habitual life dominating stage? And I want to create uh, an immediate battle plan consistent with these answers. Right. So I want to immediately do something to help get me on the right path toward contentment. What about long term? Well, I want to live consistent with my battle plan with accountability. I want to flee temptation. So that means I might have to make some specific changes. Right. You might jot down Hebrews, uh, what, 12 verses one, two and three there. Right. I might need to put away some things that are not bad things. But because of the way my heart's responding to them, they're things that easily weigh me down. I need to write out the consequences of making soft choices. This is a, a terrific assignment. We call this, uh, one of the things we call this when we give it to people, what if I cross the line? And then I have them just come up with what are all the consequences if you make these choices? Build accountability with godly friends. That's so important. And keep an eye on the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? You have to preach the gospel to yourself long term because the gospel helps you what? Helps you do the right math, helps you understand that this is ultimately pure joy. Number 10 then, consider some of the causes of losing the battle of contentment. Well, one is failure to see the danger of head, right? If I don't see the danger in verse 14 and that danger ultimately ends in destruction, if I don't see that danger, I'm going to have a problem. I live in the Ozarks. There's a lot of roads that have a little diagonal sign. And if you're driving those gravel roads fast and you miss that sign, where are you going to end up? In the water. The, di- the diagonal sign says, road ends in water. And if you miss it, within one more turn, you could be sitting right in the middle of a river or a lake. It's happened. It hasn't happened to me, but I've certainly had to kick the brakes. You don't want to miss those signs. So if you fail to see danger ahead, you're going to have a problem. Fail to see God's goodness. Right? If you don't see God as good, you're not going to have a heart of contentment. Because you're not going to believe that verse 17 is true. That every good and perfect gift is from above. And failure to remember your new birth. You're going to forget that God has saved you, but He didn't save you just for the fun of eternity. He saved you so that you can be a kind of first fruit. Now, I have this listed. We're going to have to skip it because of time. But Philippians 4 does give us some implications of contentment as well. Right? And so you can go back. Everything you need to see is there in terms of the outline of the, of the chapter. Let me just give you the implications and we'll be done. Contentment becomes an easy way to check the heart. Again, I think it's a good barometer. If you are not content then that means verses 17 and 18 you're struggling with. That's going to tie back to verses 14, 15, and 16. Right? When you are not content with God's plan, then you can rest. When you are content, I should read, with God's plan, then you can rest that for now your heart honors the Lord. You can live out what it means to have joy in various circumstances when you're content. But when you're discontent with God's plan, then you can begin to pursue change for the glory of God through self-counsel. And the place to begin is, what do I want in the midst of this circumstance? Right? Begin at the desire level, because that's probably where the problem is. You will need to be ready to answer this question. Is it possible to want to change something in your life without being discontent? And the answer is yes. It is possible to want to change something and not be discontent. The issue is the position of the heart attitude toward God and toward your circumstances. 
Right? Because you could just say, this is something I want, but for now I don't have it. That doesn't make it a sin. In fact, you jot this down and we have to pray. We're in overtime. There is a difference between disappointed and discontentment. You can be disappointed something doesn't happen without being discontent. You can be disappointed you don't have something without being discontent. And the the difference is what's going on at your heart level. Because you can say, Lord, this is my, my request. I'm disappointed this hasn't happened. What we call that in the New Old Testament is a lament. But I'm going to trust you in it. I'm going to still keep praying. It's still a desire I have, but the greater desire is that not my will, but your will be done. And what does not my will, but your will be done? That fits inside the greater plan of you're using this pressure, me not getting what I want, to help me become more like Jesus Christ. And that's the big picture. And I can be content in that. All right, let me pray for you. Lord, we love you and we pray that we would definitely strive to be content in Christ and content with what you give us and content with what you're doing through us and our circumstances and in our situations. Thank you for my brothers and sisters for their incredible patience this weekend and even this hour. We pray that you would give them insight and not just insight, but that we'd be able to take one more step further and determine how you want us to change from what we've heard this weekend. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.